Hi there, I'm Alistair Madden and you're listening to Season 4, Episode 5 of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. In this episode we looked at Union Berlin's existential moment, Toulouse's prestigious youth academy, Atalanta's pragmatic about turn and athletic clubs European aspirations under the guidance of Ernesto Valverde. We looked at all of those topics and so much more in our usual detailed way. I did mean to say this while we were recording, but if you are looking for some further reading on Toulouse, if you decide you'd like to find out more about the club after listening to this episode, then do head on over to The Athletic. There's an excellent two-part series on the club and their return to the top flight of French football. I would highly recommend reading those two articles. Anyway, getting back to the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast, do check out the show notes for the usual comprehensive running order of what we discussed and when in this episode. We, of course, produced this episode in partnership with Freelance Football Ops. If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you may be interested in signing up to Freelance Football Ops' subscription-based newsletter. We find jobs which cover writing, design, video, audio and generally anything in football media every week. For more info, visit FreelanceFootballOps.com or follow at FFOps on Twitter. Right, on now with the episode. Hopefully you're all staying safe. Hopefully you're all staying well. Enjoy. Michael Jones is back. You were missed last time out, Michael, but it is brilliant to have you back. You've stayed behind in the office to join us for this one. We're recording rather earlier than usual. Normally it's it's a later one for the recording, but it's the, the early hour of six minutes past six in the evening, of course, for this one, because Scotland are playing Ukraine. I'm heading off to the pub. I presume Barlow will probably be watching it as well. Michael still probably gutted that Gareth Southgate managed to just about cling on to his job as the England manager after that breathtaking second half last night. Anyway, enough on that. Michael Jones, generally, Gareth Southgate's resilience aside, how, how are you doing? Yeah, that aside, I'm doing good, thank you. It's nice to be back and, yeah, I can see you guys are a lot more excited for the international fixture than I am. I'm still just waiting for this whole window to end now. I've really found it a proper drag, so... Yeah, looking forward to kind of reflecting on the past few weeks of Serie A. Yeah, good stuff, Michael. It's interesting. You say it's been a drag for me. It's been a fantastic break. Was at Hamden for both of the Scotland games in this break, home Scotland games in this break, the game against Ukraine last Wednesday, and then the comeback on Saturday night against Ireland. They actually did a double header. I was at Pollock's game against Clyde Bank. That was a 4 1 win for Pollock there, stadium. Or I use this term stadium loosely, their ground, their endearing ground is just about eight minutes or so from my flat. So I wandered along for their game against Clyde Bank at two o'clock in the afternoon and then headed along to Hamden for the game against Ireland in the evening. 
Anyway, Rudy Barlow is there. He has informed us that he may well have to dash off at some point to provide a driving license to somebody who left their driving license at his flat. Hopefully that doesn't have to happen while he is telling us all how he has been. Barlow, how have you been? Yeah, I've been uh, very well. Come to think of it, Michael, I've never actually seen you in a waistcoat and I was wondering if the two things were <laughs> related. Uh, but yeah, I'm well. As as you say, Ali, it's been an enjoyable uh, international break so far for, for the Scottish um, section of the podcast and pleasantly surprised by their performance last week against Ukraine and then against Ireland. I, I don't think I could have been more Scottish on Saturday night because I was dipping in and out of the Scotland game while I was at a Cayley. So that was, um, yeah, peak stereotyping from me on Saturday. How is, and this is the question on everybody's lips, Barlow, how is your Kaylee dancing? Is, is it good? It's it's passable. Um, I do a good gay, Gorgon, gay Gordons, but uh, beyond yeah. that, uh, it's a slightly limited repertoire. If anyone's familiar with Strip the Willow, that would be my, my favourite. Um, oh, and if yeah. not, you should definitely get involved because it's terrific fun. Personally, I enjoy a dashing white sergeant. Uh, so there we are. There we are. Okay, enough <laughs> on enough on the, the Kaylee dancing and probably more on French football. Barlow Toulouse have been, yeah, really interesting case study over the last few seasons, haven't they? Yeah, Toulouse, they returned to the top flight of French football this season following a two-year hiatus with the second youngest squad in the division at his disposable Coach Philippe Montagnier implemented an entertaining style of play and guided the club from the south of France to the Ligue de title. Despite an apparent lack of squad depth and the loss of a couple of highly rated youngsters over the summer, Montagnier's side have enjoyed a fairly positive start to life back in Ligue 1, all things considered. Taking the customary road to nowhere step back and looking at matters holistically though, what is it that makes Toulouse such an interesting case study, Ali? Yeah, there's a lot to enjoy about Toulouse at the moment, both in terms of their style of play and their approach generally to what they do. But I think it is important to provide some context here. And when we think about it, for five or six seasons, Toulouse had been barely scraping by and began. They were down the bottom end of the table, they were quite a scrappy team. They really were not making it easy for their supporters. And then in that COVID-19 season, they were, of course, relegated. I think that was almost a mercy of sorts for Toulouse. Um, you think about as well that run they were on. They had 13 points after 28 games, which I'm pretty sure was a record they had become a laughing stock of sorts and yeah um nominative determinism at its finest to lose where in in a terrible terrible way they didn't really have any structure they didn't really have a vision you couldn't really see what it was that was happening in the long term there was just nothing there and i think the fans were drifting there was a palpable disconnect between the fans and the club and really to be honest relegation while it came at a financially difficult time when we take into account everything that was going on in French football and just football generally I think it probably was a blessing of sorts and what we what we have seen Barlow after that Nadir of sorts what we've seen is a post Nadir rebirth um 
They are, as you say, back in the top flight of French football. They have the youngest and least experienced team in the division. I think that's a byproduct of this fresh approach, this approach to almost drain the proverbial swamp and look at matters with a fresh perspective to, yeah, to really change things. One of the main features of this sort of turnaround has been their really quite innovative approach to recruitment. Now, you may or may not be aware that Toulouse's head of recruitment is Brendan McFarlane, who was, of course, Brentford's lead scout in France. Uh, he identified Neil Mopé, Brian Mbwemo, and played a really key role in that. Brendan actually studied French and international relations at St Andrews University and did his year abroad in Nior, which is between Nantes and Bordeaux, if my geographical knowledge is serving me correctly. Anyway, when Brendan was in Nior, he started writing about players in the second tier of French football and through that he eventually got noticed and ultimately was picked up by Brentford. So Brendan is now working for Toulouse as their head of recruitment and I was speaking to Brendan before this episode. I think it's fantastic that he is in the role he is in and he is absolutely thriving, seems to be really enjoying that role and yeah, he's he's played a key role in getting Toulouse back to the top flight, which ultimately is is where they belong. I think we do also have to mention the fact, I've spoken there about the recruitment, but there was investment from Redbird Capital Partners, which is a US-based private equity firm. They purchased an 85% stake in the club in the summer of 2020, and they seem to really get the need to, I suppose, get the fans to buy in, to get on board with the fans and to not do things in an artificial way. So they've appointed Damien Camoli, who is a 50-year-old, to sort of run the football operations. He worked at Tottenham Hotspur, he worked at Liverpool, and he was only born 100 miles or so to the east in Bézier. Um, So I think, again, there's that as well. There's someone who's quite close to the club. I think he's someone who really gets the club as well. So it all, and I will sound like a broken record there, but it all comes back to people who can relate to the club, they can relate to the fans, they know what to lose can mean to, to the local people. So I think that in itself is a huge plus. Elsewhere, the Youth Academy at Toulouse, um, fantastic Youth Academy, and certainly post-relegation, again, there was this realisation that A, there needed to be a structure, and B, there needed to be a more sensible approach to recruitment. But there's also this realisation that C, the Youth Academy, had so much potential and so there was investment in it when we think about it um, Youth Academy's produced like so Philippe Mexis Moussa Sissoko Alban Lafont and Issa Diop Alban Lafont in particular I know there's been a lot of chat recently about Elan Melier's potential role as Hugo Lloris's successor for the French national team between the sticks but anyone who's watched Alban Lafont uh, I suppose Mike Young's probably the direct successor but even longer term beyond Magnon, you have to look at Alban Lafont because he's been in remarkable form for Nantes. Seems to have been around forever, kind of had that spell at Fiorentina, if my memory serves me correctly. The calibre of players produced by this youth academy is fantastic. Just, again, looking at the youth academy, the under-17s were national champions, the under-16s, under-15s, under-14s and under-13s won their leagues as well. And there was 
a cohesive approach. You could apparently across all of those teams, and I haven't watched this, but from what I've read, from what I've been told by people, they were all playing the same style of football. So there was this continuity, there was this stability, there was this overarching approach, which is always going to lead to, hopefully anyway, first team players who are capable of making that step up to the first team. And I think what also helps with that process, and when you say process, that sounds quite negative, it sounds quite artificial, but probably the best way to describe it. The youth academy players train near the first team players they eat in the same building as the first team players they mingle with the first team players and I think all of that that collective approach is only going to end well for you the most notable academy graduate in the current squad is Anthony Ruyo who is a 21 year old defender and he has started every league game this season for Toulouse he's in the 91st percentile for tackles one he is 8th in league and for aerial duels one and seventh for successful pressures applied as a percentage. He's a really mobile defender. He's quite proactive as well. He can break up play. He's good in the air. And he's also that phrase that we love here on the Road to Nowhere podcast, a ball-playing defender. So I think he is almost the the crystallization of this excellent youth academy. I think it was ranked the fourth best in France recently. So when you think about some of the excellent youth academies in France, that really is high praise indeed. There's really a lot to be positive about. Now, I've mentioned on at least one occasion in this section already, I think, Toulouse's identity. And the coach, Philippe Montagnier, really gets that as well. You might remember he managed the Nottingham Forest, Real Sociedad, Rennes, um, you might also remember at the start of his coaching career, about two decades or so ago, he took Boulogne from the third tier of French football to the top tier of French football. So he is himself quite an interesting coach. He speaks about playing with a high press. He speaks about controlling the game through possession with an emphasis on pushing forward. Those are all things that he likes to do with his team and yeah I think any fan base can get on board with a coach who likes to play high press who likes to play a frenetic style who likes to play an entertaining style of football um <laughs> Montagnier uh said something along the lines of what he was doing was similar to what Jurgen Klopp had done at Liverpool <laughs> which sounds yeah as if he was giving himself high praise indeed but he did then go on to qualify that with saying he wasn't saying that he was to lose his answer to Jurgen Klopp, but you can, you can see that. You think about Liverpool pre-Klopp, while there was that resurgence, which ultimately ended in tears under Brendan Rodgers. For a while, Liverpool had been in a difficult place. Klopp came in, knew what it needed to get the crowd going again, got the crowd, got the support, got the fan base back on board, and now Liverpool are thriving again. Now, to lose... I'm not saying they're as successful as Liverpool, but you can see the similarities there. They're playing this energetic style, this sort of high press. They're never, well, probably never going to win Liga and Toulouse, but it's great to see them back in the top flight. I think what also makes this quite an interesting story as well is the fact that Toulouse is typically considered a rugby stronghold. So I suppose in that regard anyway, there is at least one parallel with Clermont Foot, who we of course looked at last season and who of course came up to, to Ligue 1, although Toulouse had a lot more uh, top flight experience than Clermont Foot. But yeah, there's a parallel there as well. And it's always interesting 
to take the local dynamics into account. Toulouse is the, the fourth biggest city in France. It really should have a big team, a big top flight football team there. And with Montagnier's backing, with Brendan McFarlane and the recruitment team's expertise, with the financial backing of the American Private Equity Group, things are starting to go in the right direction. I think at the start of last season, Toulouse were playing in front of about 5,000 fans. And then for their one of their final home games of the season, the stadium was just about sold out. The stadium itself actually sits on the middle of an island in the river, which flows through Toulouse. So also quite iconic. Just turning the focus back to the squad itself and the senior squads, uh, that one player I want to spotlight is Branko van den Boomen. He's 27 years old and he is the quintessential string puller for Toulouse. I think particularly with Reece Healy being out injured long term, van den Boomen's role is all the more pronounced, but he is more than answering the proverbial call of duty. He's sitting 99th percentile for expected assists, 99th percentile for shot creating actions, 98th percentile for passes into the final third. So he is a real creator extraordinaire. In terms of young players coming through in the first team, Zakaria Abukla, 22-year-old, definitely one to watch. Typically plays out wide as a forward, managed nine league goals in six and nine games for Azed Alkmaar and he is a graduate of PSV's youth system, which in itself is is rather highly regarded. He is very raw. The underlying numbers do betray the fact that he is very raw, but he has managed two goals and an assist in eight appearances this season, and he is just another element in this really exciting squad. So I have spoken at length there about Toulouse, but hopefully I have shown the spotlight on them comprehensively and coherently. I think they'll probably struggle to finish any higher than, say, 11th in the table. They did start rather well. They picked up some impressive results. They had some performances that perhaps deserved more than what they ultimately got from those games. There were a couple of draws that they picked up that they probably felt like they deserved all three points. They set 12th at the moment. Uh, they did endure an alarming run of four losses on the bounce, uh, but that win against Hans before the international break put an end to that. I think that's really important psychologically. It's quite a cheap and lazy observation to make, but to get that win after a run of losses with the international break looming, I think that's super important. They'll come back post-international break and they'll be confident. They have a good squad. They seem to be heading in the right direction. Let's see how they can get on. Okay, we will wrap up our analysis of French football there. We're going to turn our attention to Italy. We're going to look at Atalanta and Udinese, two sides who have enjoyed a brilliant start to the season in Serie A. We'll be right back. In Italy, much of the talk so far has surrounded Napoli, who topped Serie A after seven games with 17 points. However, second to them only on goal difference is Atalanta. Early signs suggest Gian Piero Gasparini's side have evolved from the team which failed to qualify for Europe last term. Michael, what has changed in Bergamo 
And do the signs suggest Ladia can sustain a title push? Yeah, I mean, the main thing that has changed in Bergamo for Atalanta is that Gian Piero Gasparini has tightened things up a lot. And as a result of that, Atalanta have become the reverse to the team we've talked about over the years, the team we've grown to love, and they've become a pragmatic, sort of more traditional Italian team. But what's also changed with that is that they've made a really strong start to the season. They're getting narrow victories in games where their opponents are outdoing them in expected goals, expected um, chances and chances created. But Giampiero Gasparini is also really happy with how this is going as well. And they beat Roma in that last game 1-0 and he had a massive smile on his face when it was really a very dogged display from Atalanta where Roma could have scored. And they had a good few chances, but Atalanta did hang on. They did a lot of things well. And this solid approach is really serving them well. But whilst there are these kind of differences... Gian Piero Gasparini has certainly not lost all of his principles that he's had and, you know, that he's been central to when building this Atalanta side. And if anything, I think one of the things that he's done really well over the summer when it looked like his sort of future at the club looked in doubt after they just seemed to lose their way completely last season as a result of like, it was a slow decline ever since the departure of Papu Gomez to Sevilla in terms of losing that creative fulcrum and just generally they just didn't click anywhere near as much all over the pitch and teams whilst they hadn't improved defensively and they were never known to be that good defensively. But What he's done really well this summer is that he's kind of gone back to his adopted recruitment strategy, which is something he kind of left behind a bit when they were trying to make that gap up to really being more consistent for a title challenge or in Europe when it actually had the sort of adverse effect. And in doing so, he's brought in a number of players who have done really well for Atalanta so far this season one of my favorite ones has been Edison he arrived from Salernitana he was key to their sort of remarkable run staying up last season but there's also been some intriguing ones elsewhere Brandon Soppy has arrived from Udinese Rasmus Hoyland he has arrived from Stem Grass for 15 million pounds but he scored the goal that took Dinamo Kiev to extra time in the third qualifying round for Stem Grass he was central to their run the 19 year old Danish, now Danish international. He's just made his debut during this break, coming on against Croatia and France. And we're also seeing young players emerge through your academy and that pathway seems to be a bit clearer, but the players who are coming in also seem a little bit more ready-made for the first team in the form of two young Italy under-21 internationals, Giorgio Scalvini, a sort of centre-half, but can also play as a midfielder, plays in the sort of form of Bastonia into Milan, kind of glides on the ball, really, really exciting talent, just 18 years of age. He scored the goal versus Roma, and it was a side-footed finish from outside the area, which for a centre-half, an 18-year-old centre-half, just demonstrates that sort of tremendous ball-playing quality that he possesses. And then the other one is Caleb Acoli, who is another one. He's only actually made four starts this season, but he's also started to break through. 
I think formation-wise, we've also seen, we've not seen too many differences. Also, the main change I think we have seen is that they've tended to go with this more solid approach. They've opted more. Last season, we saw this, saw Gasparini flirt between a 3-4-2-1, a 3-4-3, and then a 4-2-3-1. And this time around, he's gone much more in favour of the 3-4-2-1 or the 3-4-3 apart from their game against Monza, which seemed a bit of an experiment in the sense where they won 2-0. And generally the results have been really good across the board. They've picked up results against AC Milan. They did draw against newly promoted Clemenetsi. And that was a game where they actually put this more conservative lineup out. And you wonder if he will kind of revert to the one he used against Monza with the four at the back going forwards. But overall, the signs of sort of evolution are there and it might seem like a bit regressive for them to go to this sort of safety first policy but I think Gasparini's just identified a real weakness in this team and this is a team who are sort of one of the lowest now for ball possession which has previously never done an average of about 45% possession a game they've only scored 10 goals eight in open play in seven games which are a team joint top of the table compared to Napoli's 15 goals um this season sort of demonstrates sort of that they're already sort of falling off the goals for Charles when they were breaking the records two or three years ago. But he's, yeah, he's identified a real defensive weakness. And I think the sort of exciting aspect for this Atalanta team is that Gasparini's maybe most skilled in developing a really attacking team. So by laying the solid foundations, what I guess we're waiting to see is whether he's going to go if he's going to sort of keep with this for the whole season, which I would be surprised with, and I'm not sure would work long-term because even in the game against Roma, we saw the number of chances that Roma had and it could have been a completely different scoreline and we could be having, in theory, a different conversation right now, such as the sort of fast developing nature of analysis into these kind of teams. But he's done really, really well. And I, I, I like to think that he is actually going to evolve this team. We've not actually seen the likes of Ruslan Malinovsky, he's not starting week in, week out. Duvan Zapata, Luis Muriel, all these sort of attacking talents that they have. Adam Ola Luckman, who arrived on a permanent from RB Leipzig this summer. So his next challenge is certainly getting those players clicking a little bit more. And if they can with that great defence that they've got these foundations for so far, I think there is the potential to put in a title challenge because this is massively open Serie A season by the looks of it. Inter Milan and Juventus look weaker. AC Milan look a little bit weaker so far. Roma look unpredictable but exciting. And um, Napoli, uh, no, Spalletti's teams are known to start well, but could that, you know, they look the favourites at the time being, but that could change very quickly. And there is the real potential there for Atalanta to go quite far this season. And I'm really, it's a bold prediction, but I'm I'm excited to see whether they could actually mount a title challenge. And the last thing I would say is the player at sort of the heart of this, who hasn't had the mention, is Tane Coop Miners. And you mentioned um, an AZ graduate before Toulouse Alley, whose name I'm not going to try and remember. But Coop Miners has already equaled his gold tally from last season. He's now on penalty duty. He was a captain at a young age at AZ and he's, really taking that sort of leadership qualities into this Atalanta side this season, being a standout player, expected to have a big World Cup. If they're Louis Van Arles, Netherlands, he's kind of almost at the stage of a guaranteed starter for them at this point. And yeah, the foundations are really there for um, a big season, I think, and a big recovery from last time out. And suddenly, yeah, it's looking a lot more rosy in Bergamo. 
talk about your pronunciation of AZ as AZ off camera, Michael. But a fascinating insight into one of Europe's most entertaining hipster clubs um, and a little bit of a turn away from what we're used to from them. Udinese have also enjoyed a flying start. The perennial mid-tablers are thriving under the guidance of new coach Andrea Sotil. Their five-game winning streak includes defeats of Fiorentina, Roma and most recently Inter Milan, whom they dispatched 3-1. Just how excited are you by Italy's most informed team, Michael? Oh, I'm really excited about them. Like I said, sort of recent results always kind of dictate my analysis of these games largely and this is certainly the case by Udinese. But the football they're playing is very sort of Antonio Conte-esque at the moment. We're seeing Udinese play with sort of a classic Italian 3-5-2, three central midfielders, attacking wing-backs, bombing the box all the time. And a forward duo that have maybe been the best forward, the best strike partnership or strike force in Serie A so far this season, you know, as good as the Simeon has been with Cavara uh, Skellia. Udinese have had Gerard Delefeu, who I'm sure you've kept an eye on Barlow in terms of his likelihood of being recalled to the Spanish squad. Because I don't think he was in the latest one for Luis Enrique, was he? But he's leading the way for assists this season with five. Um, he's for key passes and for chances created. Delefeu has been leading that, although he is actually yet to score this season. And he's partnered by a striker called Betu who we discussed last season on the podcast. So I had a great emergence, hitting double figures for Udinese last season on loan from Porto Menenze. He's now arrived on a permanent for an obligatory fee of around £6 million, which is turning out to be really good for them. He's got, although he's only got four goals in the seven games, which of course isn't bad going at all, on course for a 20-goal season at this rate, he is leading away in Serie A for goals per 90 minutes. And the sort of tall, powerful Brazilian striker has been an absolute menace for the likes of Fiorentina, who scored the winning goal against, and Inter Milan, who he also netted against. But in terms of where the Antonio Conte comparisons come from with Andrea Sotil, like Conte, Sotil started managing and spent a good amount of time managing in the sort of Serie B and lower reaches of Italian football. He's most recent job was Ascoli. He led them from near relegation in Serie B to uh, the promotion playoffs, the preliminary round at least last season. He's also managed at Catania and Livorno in the past. Not to great success, but seems to have finally found his calling. And you wonder how much this is sort of actually been watching the, maybe a team like Spurs or Inter, Inter Milan in the last few seasons. But apart from the sort of formation itself, what we're seeing that's really interesting is the use of certain players. So for Udinese, they've got Rodrigo Pereira, who we've seen over the years play for the likes of Juventus, Watford, as quite an attacking midfielder, somebody who likes to play sort of in that space between midfield and attack. He's now being converted, Satil style I'm going to use instead of Conte style, into a right wing back. And he's been absolutely tremendous on that side. He's sort of constantly finding that space where he can sort of benefit from and sort of chip crosses into the box. He's also contributing with goals, scored a great goal in their 4-0 victory over Roma. And he's a constant out outlet for them on the right-hand side. And then on the left-hand side, they've got Destiny Odoji, who was signed for Tottenham Hotspur, ironically, for £15 million this summer and loaned straight back to Udinese. And this just couldn't be the better place for him to develop. 
he scored the first goal in their win over Roma, rampaging, run into the box, almost scored against Inter Milan as well. And he's got so much power and a lot of skill as well in terms of driving through. He's got an excellent sort of timing and awareness and when to sort of attack spaces and that's been showed. And maybe he definitely sort of deserves them more than just the one league goal he's got this season. And Udinese are a team, you know, it's funny when we sort of look at a Pozzo, if you mention a Pozzo family at the moment, people will be sort of maybe jeering towards the fact that Watford have yet again sacked another manager. But Udinese seem to have got an appointment bang on so far. And you certainly hope Sutil's given a bit of time if they do enjoy endure a bit of a blip because the early signs look tremendous. And also it's really complementing their policy, which has always been sort of signing an extensive scouting system, signing youth from elsewhere. And this time it's more focused in Europe than it has been focused in maybe South America more than we've seen in the past. We've seen Jakob He's a Slovakian defender. He's arrived from CSK Moscow. Enzo Abos, he's arrived from Angers. He, again, just for about three million. But two of the standouts have been Sandy Lovrich. He arrived on a free transfer from SC Lugano. Also has scored for them this season. He's looking a really good sort of driving option from midfield in that midfield trio. And Lazar Samadzic, who arrived from RB Leipzig after sort of not really breaking through into the first team, but is now a German under-21 international. And another player whose sort of prospects look really high. And you throw in that with Beto, and then the experience of the likes of Delafeo and Pereira around them, who are sort of creating the chances for them, creating that space. Delafeo looks like he's maybe playing the best football he's ever played since he's been in Italy. And Delafeo's played some good stuff in Italy as well. So it's making for a really exciting season. I know we spoke about Toulouse and sort of their ceiling potentially. I think Udinese is a bit higher. And Andrea Sotil was a player for Udinese in the late 90s, early 90s. His last season was in 2003 where they actually finished sixth, enjoyed a really good season playing along the sides of the likes of Jankolovsky, for those who may remember, and Vincenzo Jaquinta. And I, I, I suspect that they've got a similar kind of ambition for this season. I think they could be they could be one of the outside bets to push for a European space because the brand of football is going to be so problematic for both teams above them who, who are going to attack them and sit back. The, there is a real versatility and excitement about this team. My one concern is how much they're going to rely on the likes of Delafeo, Pereira, Betu, if these guys do pick up injuries. But it's, yeah, they've certainly maybe the team to watch. And I'll just sort of finish off Atalanta actually play Udinese in two games' time. And that should be a great encounter it's stylistically and tactically. And I'd really like to see how the teams match up with sort of the five slash three at the back. Yeah, Michael, dare we say that tie is just about as unmissable as a tie can be, certainly for those who are inclined to listen to our podcast. If you enjoy what we do, you're going to enjoy that game of football. Okay, we are going to draw our analysis of Italian football to a close there. We will take a moment to fill up our water bottles. It's roasting in my living room. The sun, despite the fact that it's October in the not-too-distant future, the sun is, yeah, coming through the Juliet windows in my living room and I'm overheating. So, guys, if you 
if you were worried for me there, not that anybody raised the alarm, but uh, I'm okay. I'll grab a drink of water and we'll come back to look at Union Berlin, which which may well raise the temperature again. They've been absolutely brilliant. We'll be right back. Ernesto Valverde became something of a meme in Spanish Twitter circles a few years back after telling the media that, quote, it is what is, unquote, during his time at Barcelona. After two and a half years out of the game, Valverde has returned to Athletic Club for a third time. So far, things are going well with Los Leones sitting fourth currently, and there are real hopes that he could lead the team to Europe for the first time since he left them in 2017. How is it, Barlow, that Valverde has a limited athletic side more than what it is? Yeah, it is slightly tongue-in-cheek just because I do think the limitations may well come back to bite athletic in the coming weeks. But yeah, they're doing very well. It's their best league start since 1993. They've won 13 points out of their last 18, the six games that they've played, 12 goals in their six games. And we've spoken at length. I've, I certainly feel like I've spoken about this to everyone and anyone in my life in the last year about how chronically Athletic Club have been lacking goals. So those 12 goals are a good sign. Um, they're really sort of a, a symbol of the confidence that Ernesto Valverde has uh, athletic club playing with and that I think it's a team that started to think less when they attack they do things first time more often they take less touches they're much more confident in exactly what they want to do when they get to the box they do things sort of yeah at that sort of higher tempo which is essentially what causes defense's problems and I think under Marcelino you saw a side that they attacked and defended very well sort of on a, on a general basis but when they did get to that final third unless there was space to work with then then uh, Marcelino's athletic club they weren't quite sort of there and and you saw that kind of start to really impact on the mentality of the team and you see them just missing one-on-ones one after another and you could kind of see that in the opening games of the season a wee bit as well against Mallorca and Valencia they were not uh, particularly clinical in those games and you you sort of wondered if Valverde was going to be able to get over that hump. Um, but some people are even kind of suggesting that they'll be able to make a push for fourth place for the Champions League. I predicted them fifth at the start of the season, uh, which I think was quite high. Uh, and I'm closer to rowing them back to sixth than I am to pushing them up to fourth, I have to say. But the fact that they've got Iñaki Williams playing again with confidence, he seems to be more comfortable. I think Less and less we're seeing him as sort of the point of attack necessarily, even though he is often the furthest forward. But he's he's got a bit more freedom to sort of cut out onto that right side and become the winger. And somebody else will come and, uh, come and run into that space, Oyan Sanset or Alex Berenguer, who started the season very well. Nico Williams, his brother. Obviously, we know of the Williams brothers. Nico's just been called up for Spain, which shows you how well he's playing. And even though he's not starting every game for Valverde, he... He does look like he has that sort of ability to beat a man and he took his goal very, very well against Rayo Vallecano in the last match day before this international break. So the fact that they're playing with so much confidence, the fact that there they have kind of three attackers that are playing very well. Oyan Sanset, who who I love, who's got a football podcast, shout out to Joe, he loves them as well. He's playing very well. 
I think this is a really promising start to an athletic club. I think they could get back into Europe. I do expect a wee bit of a regression to the mean. I should say that 11 of those 12 goals came against Elche, Cadiz and Rayo Vallecano, who, two of which are teams I expect to be battling relegation, if not um, sort of struggling in mid-table. And they do play four of the top seven in the next sort of coming stage before the World Cup. So I expect them to have a wee bit of a regression to the mean. But as we saw with Marcelino, their issue wasn't necessarily against the big teams. It was against those weird teams that they were struggling against, the the teams that would kind of sit in, make them have the ball. And as much as they struggled against Mallorca early on, and I think I'm not going to say that their problems are gone. I, I, I still think that they're not an attacking superpower. Valverde has a talent for making sure, and this will come as a kind of um, a bit of a fly in the face of a lot of Barcelona fans who who weren't a fan of his kind of latter stage Barcelona sides. But he has a talent for getting players to play with confidence, to try stuff. To to I think even though his late stage Barcelona was not the most thrilling, there was two years where he didn't quite have the attacking firepower that his rivals did. But he had Luis Suarez and Leo Messi working in such tandem with such confidence that they could pull off the most ridiculous passes and the most ridiculous sort of goals that you ended up with a side that was really effective. And I think that's what he's trying to do with this athletic side. They are rock and roll, as he said in preseason, rather than kind of a classical orchestra of a team. And uh, yeah, this is the athletic that we all kind of love to see. And kudos to Valverde because uh, he's a fantastic manager and still can't understand why it was unemployed for so long. Speaking of Valverde and his former club, we've barely touched on Barcelona this season after their really quite remarkable summer. How is progress coming along at a Barcelona side that has looked lethal in the league but ultimately lost when they came up against Bayern Munich? And separately, can Eric Garcia defend Barlow? Yeah, we're about to find out because uh, Ronald Araujo and Jules Koundé have gone down and they are injured. They're going to be out. Koundé looks like about a month. Araujo will be out until after the World Cup, at least. He won't play for Barcelona before then. So, so yeah, Eric Garcia, he's now in competition with Andreas Christensen and with um, Jared Piquet for a spot. And so he'll probably have to play against Real Madrid, Inter, Villarreal. They've got some tricky fixtures coming up there's I mean people say that Kunde could be back for the second Bayern game or even the classical but he's certainly cutting it fine this Barcelona side yeah those injuries have kind of put a bit of a dampener on things along with the Bayern defeat because apart from that this Barcelona side has been absolutely lethal as you say they've scored a lot of goals and they just look so much more confident than they did last season I mean Jordi Alba's been dropped that's kind of a well, PK has been dropped as well, but those two kind of been sat on the bench looking a bit pissed off to be a Frank and, and Xavi, I think has sent a message with that. And a lot of people wondered if he'd have the, have the balls to sort of drop them and to put them on the bench, leave them out. And I think last season, it made a lot of sense to keep them in the side because they didn't have anything else to sustain them, but now they do. And Alejandro Balde has been very impressive at left-back. Marcos Alonso started against Bayern. This is a team that has competition. I think it's a team that has a different mentality. Ferran Torres as well, he's been dropped. And and that kind of shows you the strength and depth. Dembele is in the form of his life. Lewandowski, apart from that Bayern game, has been brilliant. He's 
he, I think, as much as we all know how good Lewandowski is, there's a difference between watching someone week in, week out for 90 minutes and appreciating just how good they are. And I think Spain has, has been shocked at how good he is, as, as weird as that sounds, because he is sort of a, vet, a veteran and we've seen him do it. There's going to be that Eric Garcia. I, I sort of I was thinking about this, and Eric Garcia kind of reminds me of Busquets in a wee bit of a sense in that if things are working very well, then Eric Garcia is the perfect Barcelona defender. He intervenes early. He's proactive. He's incisive with his passing. In the same way that Busquets, in a Barcelona side that works perfectly, is fantastic. He's the best midfielder there is in the world for that system if it's working well. On the flip side, if things go a little bit wrong, then both can be exposed. So that will be an interesting development to watch over this next month where I think we'll really get get a feel for just how much kind of salt this Barcelona side has, how much that they can cut it against the big sides. I sort of thought about an NFL comparison as well. If you could just have Eric Garcia and Busquets on the ball, if you had an offensive team and an offensive team, if you had those two on the offensive team, they'd be fantastic and you wouldn't need to think about them. There wouldn't be any questions about them. But yeah, as I say, this team on the whole is light years ahead of where it was, but the pattern that I've kind of observed of this Barcelona side over recent years is that they tend to come in waves. So there'll be a phase of building, there'll be a phase of excitement building, there'll be a sort of run of form that gives Barcelona fans hope, that gives sort of, uh, yeah, the Catalan media sort of the something to go off. And then it tends to kind of sputter out. You saw under Ronald Koeman, you saw they get they got close to the title and then they kind of, lost at home to Granada and everything sort of died down. You saw it under Xavi last season when they sort of went on a run of about 15, 16 games where they won the majority of them. They were unbeaten. And again, it just sort of clunked to a halt and it it, it was kind of a bit of a letdown. And so they've got this run of fixtures coming up. As I say, they've got Villarreal, Real Madrid, Inter double header. And the emotional crash has been, I, I think is so much more exaggerated at Barcelona whenever there is a letdown whenever they do stumble at the end of the season, like they have done at Koeman and Xavi um, in the last two seasons. And so now they need to be able to break that pattern. They need to come through these games. And I think if they can, if they can make sort of a statement against Real Madrid, as they did last season, and sort of come through that Bayern game, either with a win or, or a draw, then perhaps they can break that pattern. But if, if they do fail, if Real Madrid do beat them comfortably, if Bayern do sort of do away with them as they did sort of fairly easily, despite being dominated for most of the game, then the volcanic climate in Catalonia means that this will sort of return to being a long-standing issue of Barcelona and big games don't do it. Barcelona can't sort of put it together over the course of a season. And so it's going to be a fascinating month. I think this is the month where we really see sort of Xavi's metal. Ultimately, things are decided in the last kind of three months of the season. But I think this next sort of 28, 30 days is going to be decisive as well in, in a certain sense. Finally, just a brief word on Girona. They're a curious side, but for many, not a popular side. But they probably are worth watching. Why exactly is that, Barlow? Yeah, uh, they're part of the City group. And that makes them unpopular because they're kind of a, a franchise in Manchester City, um, for some at least. And I'll just kind of go through some of the players that they have there that they've accumulated uh, that listeners might be a bit more familiar with. Oriol Romeo and Paolo Gazaniga from Southampton fame. Jan Kuto was kind of a, 
a Brazilian wonder kid that was uh, transferred to Manchester City but has been on loan there for the last couple of seasons. Yangel Herrera is also part of the City group and Tati Castellanos, who was MLS top scorer last season or, or certainly when he left MLS. And so there's sort of an interesting bunch of players. And then you have Rainier, who's who's another Brazilian wonder kid, cost Real Madrid about 30 million, but hasn't quite done it. He's been starting. They have Roro Riquelme, who I nearly stumbled over there, but terrific name. And, and is quite an exciting player as well. He's on loan from Atletico Madrid. So they've got Miguel Gutierrez, who's a, a left back that I'm a huge fan of. I think he's fantastic. And he set up Girona's first goal, um, Girona's only goal against Real Betis before the international break. It's him and it's Arnaud Martinez, a former Barcelona right back, who's only sort of 19 as well. The two of them are really impressive and they've been playing as kind of wing backs and they're really sort of something to watch going forward. Michel Sanchez is a manager who's been up a couple of times. He's been, he has sort of a reputation for entertaining, if not always effective football they have sort of a veteran story in Kristen Stuani, who's this sort of 34, 35-year-old Uruguayan target man who's been there for sort of the last three seasons as they tried to get back up and and really driven them to this promotion. So there's a lot of good, interesting storylines. There's a lot of really talented players there. And against Betis, they almost pretty much dominated them, despite the fact that they lost 2-1. They got on the ball. They were brave. They were bold. They were daring. They're not the quintessential kind of La Liga team. And so, yeah, I think this Girona side, as much as they might not have done it in a fashionable way, they're really tremendous fun. And I, I highly recommend that anybody who's flicking through channels and looking for a football match to watch sees them on. Go tune in. You'll be pleasantly surprised. Absolutely. Barlow, perhaps not a popular team, but as you say, yeah, certainly... An interesting case study. Okay, well, I think we will park Spanish football there for this episode. Anyway, we will take a quick break and we will come back to have a look at Germany. We are going to put Union Berlin under the Road to Nowhere microscope. We'll be right back. Union Berlin's match day seven win over Wolfsburg saw the side from the German capital's Kerbenich district move back to the top of the Bundesliga table and five points clear of perennial champions Bayern Munich. That victory over Wolfsburg felt decidedly routine, an indication that Ostfisch's side are increasingly at ease with their newfound status as one of the Bundesliga's strongest sides. It's still early days, Ali, but could Union really do a Leicester? Well, they do continue to be a really excellent story to Union Berlin, Michael. And as you say, the win over Wolfsburg just felt so routine, so expected. So, yeah, there we are. Been there, done that, got the T-shirt sort of thing. They were in total control in that one. Michael Redstring, 1.2 expected goals compared with Wolfsburg's 0.2 expected goals. And I think it is worth just stopping for a moment before we do go on to before I go on to answer your question Michael just stop for a moment and thinking back to 2004 and then 2009 when the Union fans donated blood to raise funds to enable the cash strapped club to register with the DFB and then pitched in five or so years later with 140,000 
hours of free labour to help with the renovation of the stadion and the Alta and Forsterai. The good times when we take all that into account, Michael, are really no more than the Union fans deserve. I think this is the quintessential case of good karma. Good things happen for good people, so to speak. Now, they've been in the top flight since 2019 and with every passing campaign, they have grown in confidence. There has been a palpable increase in confidence. We think to their second campaign in the top flight, they finished seventh, which of course put them a place in the Conference League. And then the season after that, i.e. last season, they finished fifth to put themselves a spot in the Europa League. When we combine that with the fact that they have now replaced I think anyway, most people would probably agree they've replaced Hertha Berlin as the dominant side in the German capital. It's been a fantastic few years for Union Berlin. But coming back to your question, Michael, Union almost certainly won't do a Leicester. Uh, That probably goes without saying. And while they do top the table at the moment, their expected goal difference does actually place them 11th in the table. So not that I'm wanting to spoil the party, but uh, that statistic in itself does suggest that probably come the end of the season, uh, Union Berlin won't top the table. On a similar note, Geraldo Becker has scored six goals from 1.1 expected goals. That suggests to me that the start we've seen has been brilliant. That suggests that it's it's not going to be sustainable. And that, sadly, Union won't be crowned Bundesliga champions come May. Nevertheless, Michael, while a title bid probably is, yeah, out of their reach, Champions League qualification could well be a realistic target and probably represents the next logical step in this quite remarkable journey for Union Berlin. Think about the fact that it's Conference League and then it was Europa League. So while it sounds... Almost unbelievable to say it. Yeah, it is the next logical step for Union Berlin. I know that their size probably suggests that even qualifying for the Conference League was punching well above their proverbial weight. But the way they're going, the way that they're growing more confident with every passing season, why not go for the Champions League this year? RB Leipzig and Leverkusen, who, of course, qualified for this season's Champions League, they've had terrible starts. So Union Berlin, in that regard have a head start of sorts over those two sides. Dortmund and Bayern can probably, yeah, we, we can write those two teams off as two teams who will take first and second, probably notwithstanding the fact that Bayern have had a dreadful start to the season. But I think there are two other spots up for grabs. So let's see how Union can fare there. I think we also have to give credit, and I think we've done this plenty of times on the podcast, but we have to, again, give Urs Fischer his flowers. He's always been very coy, very cautious when talking about Union's excellent start to the season and their ambitions for the rest of the campaign. But he absolutely has to be in the conversation when it comes to the top managers in the Bundesliga right now, the top managers in Europe right now. We know that he is mostly in favour of a 3-5-2 system, but he has shown that he is tactically versatile. And I think he is a coach who perfectly blends a system that works, a system that doesn't require too many tweaks from game to game, but blending that with tactical versatility, blending that with an ability, I suppose, 
to react in game to changes. And I think when you take all of that into account, that is one of the main reasons why Union have been so impressive. There is that consistency of style, that consistency of formation. And it just means that the players who are in there, whether they're starting every week or whether they're coming off the bench, they know exactly what is expected of them. And I think with that point in mind, it is quite telling that Urion have been able to move on from the now departed Max Krause and Taiwa Wani almost seamlessly with Geraldo Becker and Jordan Siabachu scoring nine goals and providing six assists between them this season. The team's cohesion, the team's collective understanding have really facilitated that transition. Just on Becker, I know that I did maybe dampen spirits slightly with regards to Becker earlier when I was saying he scored all those goals from just 1.1 expected goals. But I do think Becker's a really fun player. I'm not trying to disrespect him. I'm not trying to play down his importance. He's a huge player through Neon Berlin and he's in the 95th percentile for progressive carries, 94th percentile for shot creating actions, 98th percentile for key passes. So he is central to a lot of what Union do well and he's adding the goals, the unexpected goals at that to his game. Specifically in the Bundesliga, he's second for crosses into the penalty area, ninth for carries into the penalty area and third for assists as well as being the league's top scorer. He's 27 now. does feel like he is slightly younger than 27, but I think there are aspects of his game which previously had been quite immature. But this season, it does feel like that game has matured. That game has been refined and his decision-making is getting better. Thinking again about the team as a whole, quite simply, they have a system. They're hard to beat. They're well-organised. There's a real team spirit, all of which is epitomised by Captain Christopher Trimmel, who, of course, is 35 now. I think they have a lot of the traits that if a team is going to punch above its weight, if a team is going to upset the apple cart, so to speak, those are the traits that you need. And Urs Fischer has instilled them season after season in his Union Berlin squad. They are top in the league for Ariel Jules 1, 187. Fouls committed, 106, and distance covered, 825.8 kilometres. They're also fourth for Jules 1, 727. So I think what we see with Union Berlin is a team that is hardworking, but also a team that has real glimmers of quality, almost peppered throughout the team. On a closing note, and just conscious that we are running out of time, for this episode, there was an interesting excerpt from Kit Holden's book on Union Berlin and their promotion a few seasons ago. There was an excerpt from that book in The Guardian recently on how Union will look to reconcile the increased attention they've quite naturally received, particularly this season, with their desire to retain their quite unique identity, their desire to be different and not sell out. So to speak, there was a quote in that passage, which I thought, yeah, it was a, a quote which, which really resonated. I thought, the more visible you are in Berlin, the more likely you are to be overrun by tourists and thrill seekers. Ideally, you want to be cool enough to thrive, but well hidden enough to survive. If you have too many people who are only here as spectators, 
then eventually it won't be that great anymore. Uh, that was a quote. The second part, anyway, was a quote from Christian Arbeit, the club's stadium announcer and spokesman. I think I can see where they're coming from. It's almost like that Lemmy sketch when he says, at what cost? Now, I'm not comparing Union Berlin with the shipbuilding industry and the impact that a certain Tory leader had on that industry. Far from it. But at what cost does Union Berlin's success, does the attention they've received, at what cost does that come? Um, It's interesting to see. And I think over the next few seasons, this is a new dawn for the club. It's an unprecedented moment for the club. I'll be interested to see exactly how they navigate exciting waters, but waters which could potentially become choppy. In any event, I hope they continue their excellent run. I know that I was maybe slightly cynical when I mentioned the fact that their expected goal difference places them 11th in the table. But look, if they can defy the expected goals numbers, if they can defy the underlying figures in that regard, and if they can go on to win the Bundesliga, I'll be absolutely delighted for them. I think it would be just the story that football probably needs right now. Okay, we are going to draw this episode to a close. Thank you very much for listening. Rudy Barlow and Michael Jones, thank you to both of you. Barlow, will you be heading off to watch the Scotland game somewhere this evening or are you going to watch it in the flat with your good friend James Williamson? Sadly, I'm I'm tired away um, on the computer screen um, tonight. So uh, I might... uh... Cast an eye over the Scotland game as I cover the Spain-Portugal this evening. Um, you can be rest assured, Alan. Yeah, I will, Barlow. Uh, maybe that's for the best, but with Scotland's extensive injury list, I was just about to say your flatmate James Williamson was probably only two or three call-offs away from being called up by Steve Clark. So, uh, yeah, he's probably yeah either gutted or delighted that, that nobody else pulled out of the squad. Michael Jones... <laughs> You will probably go away and enjoy a relatively stress-free evening. You won't have to worry about whether or not Scotland can overcome that extensive injury list and secure promotion to League A at at England's expense, of course, just to to rub salt into your gaping wounds. England were, of course, relegated. Anyway, Michael, do you have much planned for, for the rest of your evening? No, not really. I might tune into the game, although I'm not sure it's on TV here, so... We'll see, but nah, not too much. Just wishing the best for you, lot, of course. No bitterness at all. Ah, he says he says through gritted teeth. Well, guys, thank you very much, and thank you to you, the listener. That was certainly, I thought anyway, another really interesting episode. It's fantastic to hear the two of you speak. It's yeah, really enlightening. Some teams that there isn't too much content on and some teams that there is plenty of coverage for, but uh, we've we've kind of tried to look beyond the headlines, as we always do. Well, thank you to you, the listener. Stay safe, stay well. Until next time, goodbye. Mm-hmm.